Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Pebble in the Pond. With me today, uh, it is my great pleasure to have with me Liana Papoutsis. Welcome. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me today. It's a real pleasure to be part of uh, Pebble in the Pond. That's okay. Uh, listen, it's uh, quite often when we start the, um, the recordings, we want to sort of go back and just focus on how you got to where you are today. So what, what did you do? Uh, what was your first job? How, how did you get into that? Okay, so my career is in academia, uh, basically human rights and international law. Something I think that was a, a natural progression for me coming from quite an activist family, in particular my father was quite a huge influence in my life. Where were you growing up, sorry? Melbourne, born okay. and bred Melbourne girl, but uh, Greek background, so uh, oh. I sort of think that uh, politics uh, runs in the DNA of most Greeks, it certainly did in my family, so very activist father in, in the area of human rights. My father was a real big supporter of women's rights, um, way before I think it became a thing. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, what... what Era are we talking? Um, like so... 60s, 70s? Yeah, six, well, wow. way before Dad had me. Um, he was already an activist. Um, yeah. He'd served in the Greek army, didn't agree with a lot of stuff. He was thrown in jail for quite a long time within the Greek army yeah. for going against what were quite authoritarian type sorts of conduct. So, And both my grandfathers served um, in the Civil War in Greece as guerrilla fighters. Then they fought prior to that in the Nazi occupation in Greece as resistance fighters. So there's a bit of a uh, what an amazing pattern, <laughs> pattern in our family for activism. Yeah, absolutely. And so when did they migrate to Australia? Um, Dad came in end of 66 okay. and mum and him were already dating um, and mum came out a year later in 67. So mum flew, she did it uh, in style and dad came out on ship. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. And so straight to Melbourne? Straight to Melbourne, both of them. Um, there was already an emerging Greek community, had been for about 12 years in Melbourne, quite large. And mum and dad came from quite a large town in northern Greece near Thessaloniki, which is Greece's second largest city. And they had somewhere to go. So there were already people that had migrated here, had been here for about 10, 12 years. So mum and dad had somewhere to go to start off their new life in a new land. Yeah. And so, uh, going through school, uh, obviously, your dad was very active still in campaigning. Very much so. From um, so he was very active. His my dad uh, was a buyer for Nissan. That was uh, his day job. Um, but he was an accomplished musician, classically trained in Greece. Um, he has four daughters, of which I'm the eldest born, and we're all classically trained in music. Uh, my second sister is a phenomenal singer. Um, so we all went down that track, very creative, but also very academic as well. Yeah. Music's in the, in the blood. Music's in the blood, yeah. Yeah, wow. Absolutely. Okay. And so what got you to want to take the course of, of academia? So what, what, what drove you to want to get into that? I think... Like I said, I think Dad was a really huge influence and we travelled a lot backwards and forwards from Greece. So there was a lot of myself identifying with my family, my grandmother, uncles and aunts, uh, older, my, my dad's uncles and aunts as well and, and some of my mother's uh, as well who had been exiled at some point during um, those bad times. And my dad was always about, you've got to fight for the underdog. It's, um, you're quite lucky, you know, you've got a roof over your head, you've got the basics. Um, there's so many people that don't. And it became for me sort of something 
So politics and human rights became my thing and international law. And as I got older, I just it was just a natural fit for me, I think. Um, and that's how I sort of, you know, took that route of study and that's how I ended up the way I did. And so where did you study in the beginning? In Melbourne. Yep. yep. So I did my undergrad um, and my master's, etc. All the postgrad study has all been done here in Australia. Okay, was that with Deakin? Yes, okay. and Monash. Okay, Deacon yeah. and Monash. Monash. Deacon and Monash. And how did you find the courses there? Look, I loved university. I could be a professional student, I think, for <laughs> my entire life. Yeah. I think a lot of people could relate to that. Um, loved it. University life, I think, um, it's not for everyone, I guess, but it really is um, an eye-opener, not only in the sense of, you know, you're left alone to your own devices as a student, um, but then you have to find your way in the world. And what does that mean for you? So it's a really big jump from high school where, you know, you're sort of mm. handheld a little bit mm. um, and then you're out into this sort of campus where it's like, you know, and back then it was photocopying and it's on this, yeah, computer stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so when did you finish your studies? Um, well, I've, I've, well, I've initially, yeah, I've just been going on. So yep. straight after high school, like, I went straight, straight to uni. Undergrad. Yeah, and then I took a break, I travelled overseas, I then opened a business, I opened up a Harvey World Travel business. Oh, I yeah. don't know if you remember them. I remember Harvey World Travel. Yeah, I set up a franchise, built that up, sold it off, then I went back to more study and it just, yeah, I just w- kept on gravitating back towards to that sort of field. Yeah, so I've done a lot of study over a lot of years. I'm now actually studying um, counselling, so I'll be a qualified counsellor by the end of next year. Wow, well, and what a great further to add to your cap i mean <clears throat> because i know your, your human rights and international law is where yep. the predominant focus was in your yep. undergrad and postgrad mm-hmm. uh, and now you're, you're going to the counseling who are you doing the counseling course with i'm doing that through um a college in south australia and the reason i sort of decided to do that is since my lived experience with family violence um that's also opened a lot of different doors for me and i found myself assisting women in court and having been through the process myself, it's, it's quite a daunting and lonely, very frightening journey. And here I was sort of anecdotally counselling. I think, oops, I better formalise this sort of things. Yeah. Even though I was reading stuff by myself, I thought it's it's not fair on yeah. me or other people to not sort of have the, the formal qualification. And how have you found that course? Uh, pretty full on, actually. It's yeah. been, it's been a bit. It's much harder than masters and stuff because it's it's, it's a lot of content, a lot of assessments, but uh, very worthwhile. It's um the, the the content and the support from the from the college is fantastic. So you're doing that externally. Externally, yeah. 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 Okay, and so you, you you briefly mentioned it before, but if we touch on because uh, obviously you you had the strong academic background and then. You unfortunately experienced uh, domestic family violence yep. uh, yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So, my perpetrator was, um, I guess, like any other sort of situation that starts off, you know, dating, love bombing, a lot of that was going on. Um, you know, there was there were fun times. I guess upon reflection, Sam, I could I could probably sit back and think. Mm, if there was something that was quite out of, you know, out of kilt in the early days, was he would lie quite a lot, and I couldn't understand the compulsion with the lying. It was just something I wasn't used to. 
And was it with little things? At little the start things with? at the start, yeah. of course. I mean, you know, we know that family violence is. We'd use the analogy of the frog in the boiling water. So I would go, oh well, you know, and I'd confront and say, there's no need to do that. You don't need to lie about ABC or XYZ. Um, but that was on. In hindsight, that was one of my first sort of inklings of like, there's something. Why would a grown man have to do that, really? And there was no reason for him to. Um, so yeah, and the, I, you know, I guess. I'm a typical example of the trajectory of family violence. So it would start off with verbal abuse, um, put downs, belittling, insulting, insulting family members, uh, that sort of thing. Very good act in front of family and friends. He was the consummate, uh, you know, life of the party. Turned on the show. Yeah, you know, street angel, home devil type thing. Um, and then it went, you know, I had I, I endured a lot of financial abuse, coercion into signing. Credit cards. Um, there were there were loans put in my name without my knowledge, and I'd find out at some point. But I'm saying at the inception point, I had no idea at the initiation point. And then we went, we moved into you know there was physical violence, there were threats against my family for death type things, and then death threats against myself, and finally our child. Mm. Um, so I sort of you know it did escalate in sort of what one would say is probably a normal trajectory. Yeah. What sort of time frame are we looking at there from the starting with the lying? The lying started when we were dating um, yeah. and it sort of stayed at that for quite a long time before other things started to happen. Um, the verbal abuse started happening, you know, a little bit into the marriage. Um, so we were married for 14 years. So it was a long time. Wow. Uh, I guess it just goes to show that you don't always know who you're living with. And it also demonstrates that as an able-bodied, resourceful, you know, educated woman um, with no language barriers or anything else, that uh, it demonstrates that family violence it does not discriminate and no. it happen, can happen to anybody, really. Yeah. yeah. That would be my biggest message to listeners. Yeah. Mm. A- and, and so throughout this, I mean, how was the mental health of yourself throughout that? Yeah, mental health... The mental health aspect of family violence we know is, is highly, highly cor- you know, correlated. Um, for me, it started with things like anxiety and anxiety was sort of like, what was he going to do next? It was that entire feeling of you know, walking on eggshells and what that meant. And when you start doing that or you are doing that for an extended period of time, there's no way that your mental health cannot be affected because you're always hypervigilant. You're always ready to fight or flight yeah. or freeze, I guess. That's the response. You know, there's three responses. Sometimes I'd fight back because, you know, victim survivors or victims within a, a violent relationship are very good at assessing their risk. So sometimes I'd fight back. Sometimes I'd actually freeze. And other times I'd flee in terms of retreating to walk somewhere out. safe or yeah. walk out of the house, etc. or you know lock myself in the bedroom etc so it started off like like that um you know and then the anxiety got worse and worse um I never really slipped into depression but post the whole experience I was diagnosed with PTSD um which I've had immense treatment for and support for and the, I, I really didn't know what was happening because like a lot of people you associate PTSD with war veterans coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan and earlier on Vietnam. But then when you think about it, family violence is war. It's war in the home. Mm -hmm. You know, it's domestic terrorism. Therefore, 
it um, it does take a toll on your physical and mental well-being. Um, and the PTSD was something that sort of shocked me a little bit and, and rocked my world because I'm like, oh, because it started off with me having flashbacks and I could hear his voice and it'd be daytime, I could be crossing a road or whatever and I'm thinking, what is going on here? Discussed it with my GP who said, this is what it is, it's PTSD and you need to, we need to nip it in the bud. Um, and I'm happy to say that X amount of years later I'm, um, I'm not in that space anymore, which is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Well, congratulations on, on being able to come out mm. the other side. And if we go through uh, during the years that you were the victim mm-hmm. and, and uh, the perpetrator was, was still there, what do, were you seeking help? Were you talking to anyone or were you sort of just holding it within you and not was wanting to talk? I wasn't really talking to anyone. I... When I started to, because with family violence cycle, there's sort of this, you go through quite a long time of denial because with family violence you have an explosion, an incident, which then goes into the honeymoon period, which then builds up tension again, then there's another explosion, honeymoon period. That's sort of the cycle. Um, So when you're in the honeymoon period, it's denial. Both the perpetrator and the victim are in denial, thinking, okay, the world's good at the moment, so let's just keep going until something else happens, of course. Yeah. Um, because you get the whole, it's never going to happen again, and I'm so sorry. Yeah, promises. And, and fake promises and, you know, but still victim blaming. If you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. So there is denial, and then the honeymoon period sort of gets eliminated from the cycle at some point as it picks up pace, because they are totally unaccountable mm. at that point in time. And then you move from denial into survival. So you're just surviving in the relationship and treading water and working or raising your children or whatever other responsibilities you have. So, no, I didn't speak to anyone. My father had been diagnosed with uh, terminal bowel cancer. So Sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, thank you, Sam. And it was a really trying time. I was very close with my dad and I'm like, you know, I need to prioritise. I've got my child. I've got to keep working. Dad's needing some support, etc. So what I tell you what I was doing, which initially was I would Google, I am scared of my husband. Wow. Yeah, that's how I started. And the things that would come up back then were intervention order ads from through lawyers. Now I wasn't ready to do that at the time. So initially um, there's a lot of fumbling around and not knowing really what to do or who who to go to. Like, I wish there was some way I could have known that I could have contacted some sort of service whereby that could help me escape with a safety plan. Yeah. Whereas in the end, the way I got out of it was in a big blow-up, which is the way it happens for most women, and you automatically enter crisis mode. Yeah. Yeah, so do you feel... Was the situation exacerbated when you had a child brought into the mix? Absolutely. So um, it was a really difficult time because at the time my sister and brother-in-law were in... (coughs) One of my sisters and brother-in-law were in a bit of financial bother and they were living with us. So I came home with a newborn child. They had a toddler and their own financial issues and that's fine. You know, I love my sister. I would always support. So I had a lot of pressure. I had, you know... um, a newborn, I had those two at each other's throats. Yeah. Um, their little daughter, my niece, 
and a perpetrator. So that was a really difficult time and I I remember going to the GP because I was uh, crying a lot and not feeling in control of what I was doing and automatically I just diagnosed myself with postnatal depression and she said to me, okay, she said if we look at the timing, we would call this postnatal depression but it's not because of the baby, it's because of the circumstances surrounding you. So sister needing you, sister in a bad place, you know, financial problems, perpetrator, you know. But perpetrator was a bit more well-behaved when they lived with us for that very short amount of time. So it was quite an onerous time um, on on me at that point in time. But, yeah, the, the doctor didn't feel it was postnatal, but I was quite low mood, but it was the circumstances. Mm. Yeah, the circumstances. And, yes, the baby does change things because you can understand, Sam, And what does a newborn baby need? everything yeah. right they need to be fed All the time. clothed mm. bathed burped slept you know everything um and that really is not conducive to the mo of a perpetrator because the attention starts to be taken away from the perpetrator in fact it's totally taken away in particular with a mostly taken away in particular with a newborn because if you leave the newborn, they actually will die. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they need yeah. you. They, you know, they need both mum, mum and dad, obviously. But um, with a perpetrator in the mix, it's mostly mum doing most of the work. Because um, perpetrators, you know, they oscillate between being father of the year and then really not wanting to engage at all. It's it's a really weird experience. So yeah, that was that was a difficult difficult time. Yeah, definitely the arrival of um, my son really up the ante of the violence actually and up the up the ante that was that's how i would describe it and, and you feel like it was mainly because the attention was taken off the perpetrator that wanted your attention correct however as time goes on sam what happens is a perpetrator will always try and find a silver lining so where i had been you know under control and he had been able to get away with so much and of course the baby comes along and the attention is diverted mostly away from the perpetrator towards the needs and survival needs of the child or, or the baby. What happens is as the child gets older, well, then they start to assert their independence. You know, when they're two or three and they're being really bratty and, you know, they're yes. just asserting their independence. They're little people, right, with their own rights. Not well. Yeah, you're not well, <laughs> right. A perpetrator is challenged by that, totally challenged by that. So because these little people all of a sudden are like, no, and you know, go away mm. and, you know, they're starting to talk and doing that sort of thing. So then what the perpetrator does, okay, how am I going to do this? So they start using the same sort of tactics on their children as what they do on the, on their, on the victim, the woman. Yeah, and right. that is to exert the control over the child because the child is not seen as an individual human being with their own human rights. The child is seen by per- perpetrator as an extension of themselves in a proprietorship ownership sense. They own them. They own them. They'll do what they say. Correct. Absolutely. And, and does it give you, do you have, being in the situation yourself, do you see why women in that situation with children sometimes don't even speak up at all? Absolutely. The fear. Yeah. And I know because I was in that position. So it was sort of like the better the devil you know. Um, the fear of leaving was just so huge that the fear of staying actually felt more comfortable, yeah. believe it or not. 
both levels of fear, but the fear of leaving was astronomical. I couldn't even imagine it. It it felt like, you know, trying to climb Mount Everest. It felt insurmountable and impossible. And also there's the death threats by the perpetrator. Yeah. If you ever leave me, I will. If you did, I will. You know, and, and that's constant, really. And as I got bolder in saying, I can't wait till the day comes till I leave you, whatever, you know, as I got more bolder and, and you know, I'd made up my mind that we had to, I had to end this somehow, well, that's when the threats were coming back thick and fast at me, towards me. Yeah. Again, I can't relate to being in a situation like that, but I, I know there's plenty of people out there that, that could. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, and, and as you know, it's still happening all too often. It is. Tell me, what, 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 how did you get out of it and what made you want to take action? To remove yourself from the situation. I had taken action with some of his fraudulent behaviour because there were funds put in my name which were, you know, incredibly huge. And uh, so I had to take action for that to happen. And that was also was still marriage. But what really, I guess, made it for me was Dad was dying and the violence was increasing he would taunt me about the impending death of my father. I ha- was suffering from anticipatory grief and, you know, a lot of anxiety about losing dad. Um, he was, dad was still fairly young. And that sort of... Once dad died, it was like, I've, I've got to get out. And I guess he, he sort of made it easier for me because of the death threats. But what really... If I had to say what was the, the real incident... It was absolutely the fact that he hurt our child mm. and then proceeded with death threats against my child. And yeah. I forgot everything became irrelevant. It was yeah. all about safety. his protection and his safety. And did I believe he was capable of what he was threatening? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Each and every single time. Each and every single time. And so what did you do? Did you reach out to a service? Did you... um No, I had reached out to police before um, this particular time and really received a poor response initially. Um, I'd like to say that in Victoria that has changed quite a lot now and what the response I received back then is not what women would normally receive now, which I'd like to point that out because I think that's really important. Well, I definitely want to touch on that because you've been very active in that space as well. Yeah. So... so the response wasn't very good, um, but what happened was with the with the final you know incident against our son yep. and all the death threats, it was like there's no other option. I've got I've got to go back to I, I went to the, I I actually went to the police. I didn't call them. Yep. Um, he was also by that point in time, I wouldn't have even called it a marriage. He would just come and go from the home as if it was like yeah. a hotel. So it was sort of time for me to take advantage of that sort of leeway. Um, and go to the police and just report the latest incidents and then, of course, they wanted all the historical information as well. And that was enough then to uh, convict? Absolutely. The perpetrator? Yeah, so... um, And he did serve some time as well. Okay. So as a result, and I know that... And this is, again, the inspiring part about people as yourselves who have been through such a terrible ordeal, but being able to come around and... And use that experience to want to inspire, to want to take action, to influence change. Mm-hmm. Certainly, something you've been a big part of in recent recent times. So, yep. tell me, how has that experience driven you to do what you do today? I think part of it was definitely my background. 
um, my knowledge about human rights and and how law is created and also that you know family violence is definitely a basic violation of people's human rights and you know we can trace that right back to the UN Charter of 1948 so I sort of like I came to a point where I wanted to contribute I wanted to give back um, and how could I do that with my skill set and how could I leverage that skill set and where could I use it? And I thought, mm, I'm going to go do a media training course about advocacy and how to speak to media, interviews, papers, news channels, etc. So I did that and then the Royal Commission was happening in Victoria into family violence and then I was tapped on the shoulder to apply for or provide an expression of interest um, for Victoria's Victim Survivors Advisory Council, which is the first of its kind in the world, actually. It's amazing, isn't it? It's been, it's been a game changer. Everyone was new to it. You know, the government was new to it. Um, bureaucrats were new to this thing. Um, lived experience, people such as myself, nothing had really been tried like that before. So we were all in it together, fumbling our way through, um, which has been a fantastic experience so far. Three and a half years we've been sitting on the council with wide consultation across all parts of government in Victoria, trying to influence federal government, trying to influence other states into what they're doing or at least speaking to other states about what we're doing. Uh, so basically the journey took off from there and um, so I've kept on sort of, you know, I lecture one day a week because I can't let go of it. I love it so much and I love the students but I've now moved on into that role about consulting across different agencies and um, corporates, etc. who, you know, because when you think about it, organisations are a microcosm of the community. So there's going to be perpetrators and victims in those spaces. So a lot of people want to be doing the right thing um, by their employees, by their customers, affected customers, you know, utility customers, water customers, etc. So there's a lot of work out there to be done in order to help vulnerable people due to family violence. And being able to recognise and, and educate or create that awareness as well. Mm-hmm. And is that where you see yourself playing a big role in the future? Is yes, I think I'm, I'm on a... I mean, I'm, I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life, frankly. Um, you know, I've got a beautiful relationship with my son who's now 14 and uh, you'd know about teenagers, I'm sure, you know, they go on to 24 at 14. <laughs> so well, not, not yet. My oldest is eight, but oh, okay. it feels like he's it's a It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. Um, he's, a, he's a beautiful kid, like big heart, compassionate. So obviously there's a part of me that is also teaching him about respectful relationships and what sort of man does he want to be? Um, and there's also a part of me that wants to leave a legacy for him as well from, you know, what, what mum and I went through. It's, um, okay, it wasn't great, but we've, it doesn't define us and we've come out the other end. So I see myself continuing in this space, um, you know, presenting at conferences such as Stop TV, which I have done, um, ambassadorships. Um, I sit on the board of Respect Victoria, which is Australia's first statutory authority, purely for the primary prevention of family violence. So it's incredible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's amazing what, you know, those recommendations from the Royal Commission have done. Fairly young organisation, we're only just a year old, but we've done a real lot of work, just a hell of a lot of work. And that's, that's kudos to the amazing team and the CEO and a fantastic board. Lots of transparency and just people wanting to do the right thing by 
trying to create cultural change and, you know, really challenge those embedded beliefs about strict adherence to gender stereotypes or condoning violence, and which is a real tackle. It's Social reform is not easy. It's difficult. Yeah. And what a great opportunity for you to be involved in that process. And, I mean, it must be so rewarding for you now to be able to be in a position of influence where you can actually sit there and, and affect change. I think ab- absolutely, I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm, I consider myself very lucky. Uh, I wake up every day and I'm raring to go. It's not like I wake up and I say, oh, I don't want to go to work today. That yeah. never happens um, at all. But it's also the people that I work with. It, it, you know, this sort of change doesn't come... It comes from the collective activism and the passion, dedication, commitment from a lot of people, you know, that I work with. And I guess, you know, if I had to sum it up in, in that in that sort of area, I'd be going, well, you know, I've got my, I'm working with the best tribe ever. I found my tribe and people like me who are passionate about creating change. And, and they may or may not have lived experience, but they don't want to see, like me, another, you know, more women go through what I went through. We know they are. We know there's more coming. We know that this isn't going to end tomorrow. However, by doing nothing, what are we doing? Yeah. And it's, it's a bit of a, an interesting situation because you want it to be – we all want this to be solved so quickly, yet we know uh, that it's uh, – the statistics are still, you know – Quite high. Quite high, too high, uh, but – it certainly feels like there's a bit more uh, active uh, organisations that are active out there. Processes are getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, the awareness and education feels like it's it's starting to get out there a little bit more. Would you agree? I totally agree with you, Sam. It's like any sort of social reform um, campaign. So, you know, smoking campaigns that started around Australia back in the 80s, did we have a significant reduction of smoking within a year? Absolutely not. We have had a significant reduction of smoking 35 years later, though. We only now have 10% of the Australian population smoking. So we need to think of family violence in the same way. If I had a magic wand, sure, I'd love to, like, make all those statistics zero and you and I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. That would be amazing, but that is not the case, so we have to keep on keeping on. However, you are right, there's lots of reform work going on across Australia where this is a national crisis. There's no two bits about it. I guess one of my frustrations is if we had the amount of women, for example, killed in, say, what we term as, you know, normal terrorism, where billions of dollars goes to, you know, border protection, etc., it would be a national outcry. Mm. You know, if 50-plus people were killed every year due to that sort of thing. Our borders would be shut down. There'd mm. be, you know, campaigns on TV every other second telling us to be aware and alert, etc. But the fact that it's, you know, family violence or domestic violence, oh, it happens behind closed doors, it's not good enough. It's yeah. not... It is not... We can't it now say it's not our business. It's everybody's business. So... But changes are happening and it's good to... It's, it's down to good leadership. We need good government leadership. Yeah. And especially across the state governments, and we need people who are willing to put in the work. And the importance that the role that lived experience plays in that process is, is crucial. It's absolutely crucial because how do you know where the cracks are? For example, 
traditionally what we've done in societal structures is we build things and then we expect people to fit in to that process or that building, a physical building, for example. Now we're co-designing with people with lived experience. We're co-producing. So we're saying, okay, where were the cracks? What was great? What wasn't so great? And building around that as opposed to, here you go, here's a nice new service for you and it doesn't meet anything mm. or very little of what people need. So there's also been a shift in thinking about how do we design service delivery? Well, we've got to do it with the lived experience at the centre. That voice must be at the centre of everything we do because we're then going to keep creating the wrong, the wrong delivery services uh, or the wrong maybe even legislation, incorrect or not quite right legislation, which doesn't give us the outcomes that we need. Completely makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So as you look to Victoria as a state, I mean, do you feel somewhat they're leading in what's going on down there with the changes since the reform? Um, I guess as a Victorian I'd say absolutely yes. Um, I'm actually very proud to be a Victorian. I think the Andrews government and um, some of the key ministers uh, are certainly to be commended on the unprecedented investment and commitment. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, other states do look to Victoria and also we have international uh, people from the space that come to Victoria and we have, you know, round tables and forums and talk about what we're doing. But that's not to say that other states aren't doing things. Um, whether they're looking at Victoria or looking at what else they can do in their own states, depending on the nuances of different states and populations and, you know, demographics and geography as well, knowing that Australia is quite a large country. So I think Victoria maybe sort of lit the spark, so to speak, yeah. um, for it to keep burning and for the rest of Australia to sort of look at this. But I think we shouldn't look at it as a state-by-state state situation. I think we should look at it as, as, a, as a national problem and see how we're going to solve it nationally because we're all part of the same country. Yeah. Mm. Is that something that you hope to see in the future, a bit more of a I do. federal approach? I'd love to see – I'd love to see more support from the federal government on this issue um, – because, you know, leadership is really important and whilst you could have great state leadership in all states, for example, you've also got to have great federal leadership that's also going to drive this issue and make it important and provide the correct messaging to the community at large. So at the moment, uh, I don't think the federal government is doing everything it could and people would argue that they're not in a number of areas but in the family violence space, I'd like to see a bit more action um, and galvanising on this issue in in a positive way. So, uh, I mean, as as you look to some of the solutions moving into the future, uh, obviously uh, an evolving policy uh, that can continue to consider lived experience and actually look at the processes and continue to make tweaks and changes to make sure that it's effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, campaigning, being out there, spreading the word yep. at conferences, podcasts, other things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. what, what other things do you think are a part of the solution to empower people that are in a situation, um, both victim but also in order to reduce the, uh, the chances of perpetrators offending? So in terms of the lived experience voice? Yeah. Yeah. 
a lot of a lot of us advocates in this space, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. We give a lot of our time. Um, just give a lot of our time. I think there needs to be a better model when you are, you know, doing things with people lived experience in some sort of remuneration, which is not embarrassing or insulting, like yeah. you know, a pot plant or anything like that. Yeah. I think we need a model whereby we actually value lived experience and, you know, use it. Not use it, but look at it as sort of like a consultative type role. Um, I think that would really empower a lot of people with lived experience because a lot of a lot of people with lived experience that have a lot to offer, but they retreat from the advocacy space because you've got to pay the bills. Yeah, and advocacy really doesn't pay, frankly. Yeah. Um, let, let's call a spade a spade. Um, so you've got to try and make it work, and you know, like I put a lot of pressure on myself to try you know, keep the bills running but still try and stay in the space as much as possible. So we need a sort of model whereby people with lived experience are not sort of re-traumatised and maybe looked at as if they're not contributing, which is what they've heard from their perpetrator, or that they're useless, which is what they've heard with their perpetrator, or that they're not worthy, which is what they've heard from their perpetrators. And, you know, but advocacy is one of those beasts that's a little bit difficult. Resources. uh, Resources. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You see it uh, more and more uh, in certainly the space that we're in, but seeing lived experience even in the peer workforce coming through mm. uh, to be able to shape that. I mean, they're playing such an important role. The mental that. health space, Sam, has been doing that in Australia for quite a while. And the, the peer model, the, the peer support worker type model, I think it's a brilliant model. And I think mental health have been doing it uh, quite well for, for, for quite a while now. I'm not saying that they haven't had their issues Absolutely. We need to see that model adapted, tweaked, you know, for the nuances of family violence. I think peer support modelling in like mental health space does with family violence I think is imperative. Uh, I do go to court with some women and it just makes such a hell of a difference or even, you know, going to them with their to their solicitor or whatever the case may be, um, just to have that support by someone who's been there and done it yeah. is such a relief because you're fraught with anxiety. It's a really – it's a journey. The, post, the post-separation journey, you know, crisis period normally lasts for about 12 to 18 months before you can start really t- trying to rebuild your life. Mm-hmm. And it's fraught with so many dangers and – you know, this hypervigilance by the, because of the perpetrator and you're in and out of police stations perhaps with statements. You might be in, you know, different courts over, you know, the same sort of period of time. It's a really, really, really lonely, hard, arduous journey at a time when you are overwhelmed and you're just above capacity. Mm. So that peer support model that you mentioned has a lot of merit and I think we need to look at it better for in the family violence space where... We lived experience, people who have moved on and rebuilding their life can actually support those that are where I was X amount of years ago. Yes. I think it's really – it's a great model and I think we need to really look at it closely. So we look at the peer work uh, model coming in. What are, what are the other solutions to help you know, victims at the moment? Do, do you feel like that uh, other than conversations and mm-hmm. letting them educate awareness and, and – give them the confidence in the process. Are there any other tools you think that should be brought in in order to help in that situation? Absolutely, Sam. I think that um, 
more information sharing between services, police, magistrates, courts or local courts, depending on what state you're in. We need a bit more cohesiveness because a lot of people are doing amazing work and no one, the left hand isn't talking to the right hand, yeah. so the victim just falls through the middle. So if we could have more multidisciplinary collaborative work amongst those various disciplines, I think we'd see better results and less victims falling through the, through the net, so to speak. So I think that's definitely um, one way of doing that. The other thing that we need to reconcile, which is a, which is a difficult ask, but one which is very real to, to people with lived experience, is you've got your state laws, you know, which can protect you with an AVO or an IVO, depending on where you are and what the acronym is, but, you know, to, to protect yourself from the perpetrator. But then family law. Family law is federal jurisdiction. Now, for most women... You know, we don't care that it's federal jurisdiction and that there's other laws that are... So the IVO says I'm protected and then the family law comes along and trumps my IVO. So what we need to do is find a way of reconciling that process because where an IVO will say, you know, Mrs Jones and her three children are protected by Mr Jones, you go to family law court and they go, well, that's OK, that's just historical, which it isn't, really, that's, it's current... And Mr Jones has access to three children. Now, Mr Jones being deemed to be unsafe in one court of law, mm. why is he then having perhaps unsupervised access to children? A perpetrator cannot be a good parent. It's like oil and water. Can't put those two together. So this is where the frustrations lie for many women with lived experience and definitely post-separation because... What happens is the perpetrator can use the legal system, use the children as another form of abuse. Mm. So it can go on until oh, forever, <laughs> really. Yeah. So we, our family law, which is federal, Commonwealth law, and our state laws, how do we reconcile that to sort of try and bridge that gap? And is that part about what you're doing yes. at the moment? That's on your agenda? Absolutely. Because it, it, it is, yeah. you know, it's survi victim survivors, it's... If there's children or property involved, it, but mainly children, it's their biggest, biggest problem, ongoing problem. And it could be six years after they, they've left the relationship. You know, I've had women say, if I knew it was going to be this bad with family law, I would have just stayed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like something that should be a priority. Absolutely. So I appreciate the fact that you're out there uh, pushing for that. If we go back to your son for a second, how have oh. you seen um, your son change? What What was the age where he was he was at when the perpetrator was no longer part of your life? Um, he was uh, about eight and a half, but he had witnessed quite a bit of violence and hurt seen. Now, how's the impact been on him? Well, what I did, Sam, um, there was a horrific incident when he was five, and which he witnessed, obviously, and. I was not at a point that I was ready to leave. My fear was just too huge. And um, so I thought, how, what, what can I do? What can I do? How do I protect my child as best as possible? So I took it upon myself to research um, and find somewhere to take him to a professional to start talking about what he was seeing and give him that, that a safe space to discuss at the age of five, which can I say to you, when I had private meetings with his therapist my mind was blown as to how much a five-year-old was absorbing so she was able to arm him with strategies how to deal with what was happening um, between mummy and daddy 
type thing. Or, or but but sometimes you know towards him when he was yeah. sort of the violence was towards him. And by the time at eight and a half, he was well equipped also for the post separation because she had started that process with him. So now at this age, she's a well balanced, rounded, typical teenager with a beautiful soul and very empathetic. Um, and needless to say, the DNA has continued. He uh, is an activist. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, he um, he writes to the state government under a pseudonym about child experiences of family violence and he's also done some f- non-speaking part filming for training for the staff um, in the family violence sector in Victoria. And that in turn is probably helping him as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And he has no shame about talking about what's happened and he says it's not the shame is not his or his mum's and he's quite open about it. Because he said to me, you know, you don't know what's going on with my friends. Maybe one of them, if they know that I'm happy to talk about, they might come and talk to me about what might be happening to them. You know, as you never know. Well, it sounds like he's doing remarkably well given the circumstance, and that's, yeah. I mean, what what a great uh, thing you did early on there to be able to get him to seek help. I just, I thought, what yeah. else can I do? And there was a lot of guilt, Sam. Yeah. I, on my behalf, you know, mother guilt is a thing, <laughs> but I felt it, you know. Uh, tenfold with you know how do I help my child and um, yeah. I'm really proud of him, really proud of him. Well, you should be and you should be proud of yourself uh, oh, because thanks. it is inspiring to hear about what you're doing. I truly mean that. Someone who's super passionate about this and being out there and, and very active and following in your father's footsteps, uh, it's it's really great to see that that's that that's happening and that your voice is also being heard along with other lived experience as well in order to affect change because it's in really, really important. Absolutely, I agree. And, you know, it takes – it just takes a number of people. As I say, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, you know, we, we – we, what we walk by are the standards we accept. So the more of us that stop walking by and realise that we have a problem with family violence and in our own small way can do something about it, the better chances we have of, you know, reducing incidents and impacts. Your father sounds like someone who uh, continues to be an influence as far as um, wh- what you're doing with your yeah. life. Uh, has there been other people that have also been a part of that journey for you? Absolutely. Um, some of my closest friends have been extremely supportive. Um, my aunties. Um, but, yeah, Dad, you know, Dad's always there, you know, if I if I sort of have a moment like I would think, I wonder what Dad would say about this, you know. So um, that's my way, you know, of keeping him really close to me. But yeah, I've had amazing support, just amazing support, and I, you know, I, I love these people for 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 being there um, for for myself and also for my child because, you know, I'm mum and dad to him, and and that's fine. It's not a problem. But the fact that you know he's got. So all these wonderful people that understand what he's been through is really, really important and I'll forever be indebted to these people. Mm. They've been amazing. Yeah. Well, are there any closing words you want to you say? Is there anything? You've made some really great insights and some great things to, for our listeners to take, um, take hold of. Is there anything else you want to leave with them? Yeah, I think um, it's really important to understand that family violence is is not one of those things whereby you go, oh, well, 
you know, that's a horrible dress, I'll just throw it out and, and move on. It, it, it's, a, it's a situation where you can find yourself trapped very easily, um, like discussed before, the frog in, you know, boiling water analysis. You just acclimatise till you either die in the pot or you jump out of the pot. I think uh, for anyone listening who may be enduring family violence now, even though you may not be able to see a way out, um, please take your time and if you do want to leave, there are ways of doing it safely and there are services out there that will help and always um, have your decisions supported no matter what those decisions are. You can never push someone to leave, to stay, to do something else. It's, it's got to, there's got to be respect for that person's decision-making process because it's extremely difficult when your mind is already being influenced and, and really um, mucked up, I guess is the best way, by a perpetrator who has really, really worn you down. And I guess for other listeners who may uh, not have lived experience and are interested in this topic, get involved. Um, don't be a passive bystander if you see something that's inappropriate. Um, there's no need to humiliate people, but find a way to become an active bystander. We do have a national emergency in this country. We do have way too many women killed. It's got to stop. And it's up to us. Beautifully, uh, beautifully put. And coming from a beautiful person. And so, Liana, we'd like to really appreciate uh, having you on the show and the time that you've spent with us today. Very well. Uh, we appreciate everything that you're doing out there. Uh, unfortunately, as a result of, of an incident over many years. Uh, but as a result of that, what you're doing is truly admirable. So keep it up. Um, Thanks, if, Sam. If people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Um, the, I've got a website, which yep. is au, and people can send there's forms on there, phone numbers, etc. And things your services you're providing is speaking. I do public lots of public consults. speaking. I consult across the corporate and the government sector. And I also help women where I can navigate the system. So, yeah. um, and I'm happy to, I, I chat to a lot of people, people that might just have, you know, a question here and there. So, yeah, really willing to help anyone who needs anything really because it's, um, it's a hard slog. Yeah. Well, keep it up and I'm sure uh, we'll hear more of you in the future and, and congratulations on, on doing what you've already accomplished and... Thanks, Sam, and, and thank you for your organisation in taking the time out to sort of shine a light um, on this issue and, and do these podcasts and to be here at the Stop DV conference. I think it's um, extremely important. It is, and it's a great opportunity to get people you know, like yourself who have something so important to share uh, and try and get the message out to more people. Yeah. Than three hundred and fifty odd that are here. So correct. Um, so thank you for being a part of that. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of what is now season two of Pebble in the Pond. Today, I share with you a conversation I had recently with Liana Papoutsis. Liana is an experienced human rights, international relations, and law academic, and family violence and social change advocate. Liana's lived experience of intimate partner family violence has led to a personal crusade for education and awareness. Listen in as Liana discusses her experience 
and how it's time to go beyond awareness and talk about the resources and actions needed to change our community if we are to genuinely improve safety and support for women navigating family violence.